Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, got some big news for you. Um, I don't know if you know this, this is pretty big news, but Mike Tyson died. He got better though. Okay. So there you go, that's the important thing. Yep, in an interview with the New York Post recently, uh, Tyson said that four years ago, he smoked venom from the Sonoran Desert Toad as a dare. As you do. As you do. And during the experience, he quote-unquote died. Although it's unclear, actually, when you read on whether he means in the actual heart-stopping and had-to-be-resuscitated sense, or in the metaphorical sense, that the experience, quote-unquote, killed the person he was and allowed him to become someone new. It actually uh. seems like he means the latter. Here's a quote here. Before I did the toe that was a wreck... <laughs> The toughest opponent I ever faced with myself. I had low self-esteem. People with big egos often have low self-esteem. We use our ego to subsidize that. The toad strips the ego, apparently. He said that he's since done toad 53 times doing wow. toad being a thing. Um, and that that has enabled him to stop doing other drugs, to lose 100 pounds, to reconnect with his family, and, as we know, start boxing again. People see the difference, he says. It speaks for itself. If you knew me in 1989, you knew a different person. My mind isn't sophisticated enough to fathom what happened. <laughs> but life has improved. The toad's whole purpose is to reach your highest potential. I look at the world differently. We're all the same. Everything is love. This from the man who once said, remember, that he liked to drive people's noses into his brains, mm -hmm. wanted to eat Lennox Lewis's children, etc., etc. So there you go. He was on a path. He smoked some toad. And his life changed completely, Eric. <laughs> I guess so. You know, it reminds me of that old cliche. Everyone's got a plan until they ingest a little toad venom. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, who was it who said that? Ah, there you go. There you go. In all seriousness, do you know what, what I think of when I hear about someone trying to get high off toad venom? Uh, if, if you're from my generation, there's one and only one toad-licking cultural touchstone, and that's Beavis and Butthead. Of course. And, and now that I think about it, Beavis, Butthead, and cartoon Mike Tyson from Mike Tyson Mysteries, yeah. that is a show I would watch. Put those three Absolutely. together. It's gold, Jerry. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so uh, we're we going to be doing some Toad Live on a podcast sometime soon? <laughs> um, let me check with my uh, <laughs> with my various managers and agents as to whether that's a good right. career move. Right. Indeed. Who knows what path we'd end up on. Right. Um, today on the podcast, this Toad, otherwise Toad-free podcast, uh, <laughs> we look at the big news of the week, uh, which is not Mike Tyson, quote-unquote, dying a few years ago. It's Canelo Alvarez seemingly deciding that his next bout will not be at middleweight or at super middleweight or even at light heavyweight, but at cruiserweight. Uh, we will look ahead to Teofimo Lopez finally facing off against George Cambosis and to the big Showtime fight of next week, the eagerly anticipated 122-pound clash between Stephen Fulton and Brandon Figueroa. And to help us break down that fight, the man himself, Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton, will be joining us. But we begin in Las Vegas. We're on Saturday night on ESPN Plus Pay-Per-View. Terence Crawford remained undefeated and became the first person to stop Sean Porter, dropping him twice and forcing a corner stoppage in the 10th round of the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. 
Yeah, even though he was officially a 7-1 to favorite taking on a 5-1 to underdog, we knew this wouldn't be an easy fight for Bud Crawford. We thought it might be his toughest and most meaningful test, and arguably it was. This was a good, not great, but good, hard, close fight until, as you said, Crawford dropped Sean Porter twice in round 10. First, when he caught Porter with a left hand as he bent forward, and then with a combination, the key punch being a vicious right hand that Bud really put his weight into. And at 121 of the 10th, after Porter pounded the canvas in frustration, his father and trainer, Kenny Porter, climbed the steps and stopped the fight, dropping his son's record to 31-4-1, 17 KOs where his record might forever remain. More on that in a bit. Uh, while Crawford stays perfect, now 38-0, 29 KOs, as he has now knocked out nine opponents in a row. But prior to that 10th round, it was a close fight. There was a case to be made that Porter was ahead through nine, although none of the judges thought so. Max DeLuca had it 87-84 Crawford, and Steve Weisfeld and Dave Moretti had it 86-85 and the three judges, somewhat surprisingly, in a fight with several very close rounds, agreed on eight of nine rounds. The eighth mm. was the only one they were split on. Uh, but Porter was getting things done. Crawford had some trouble getting business of his own done until he stopped having any trouble getting that business done. Uh, Kieran, how did you score it? And with the guy we all want to see Bud fight, Errol Spence, sitting ringside, was this the statement win Bud Crawford was looking for? So going into that final round, I had it 87-84, Bud Crawford. I actually had exactly the same scorecard as Max DeLuca. Um, I got the impression that a lot of folks watching had it 86-85, Crawford, or, or maybe some the other way. Um, I, I guess the way that the fight went wasn't entirely dissimilar to how I'd pictured it. Um, Porter starting the faster and, and picking up the early rounds before Crawford steadily took over. I, I thought it was an interesting fight to watch and score in that I felt like early on that Crawford was already winning the war, if you will. Like he looked comfortable in there from a, from quite early on. But Porter's work rate and flurries were doing enough for him to win a lot of the battles within the war, so that he was picking up points and winning and winning rounds, even if Crawford's body language was such that he already felt kind of comfortable in there early. Um, but I did think that about round six, something like that, it looked as if. Crawford went from being in a position where he felt comfortable with what Porter was bringing to being in a position where he thought, okay, now I'm going to start bringing it to Porter. And, and I thought in those last few rounds um, before the stoppage that Crawford was starting to really assert himself, was getting the timing right, crucially was getting the distance right. Mm. Um, you know, full credit to Porter. I think he can sometimes be overly pigeonholed as just a sort of face first fighter, but... He's an intelligent boxer as well. And I, th I thought he showed that. He made it difficult for Crawford to get his timing down. Um, you know, he was being unpredictable with his own timing. He was deploying a lot of feints. Um, but ultimately, I thought Crawford was able to do what he does so well. He used Porter's aggression against him and, and steered him into punches in that final 10th uh, round there. Uh, Crawford's an intelligent boxer and he's also a mean fighter. I, I thought that he would have no option but to box off the back foot all night, but he had no interest in doing that whatsoever. And that's how he, you know, fights against somebody he considers a really good friend. So God only knows what he's <laughs> going to want to do when he's in there with somebody he really doesn't like at all. Um, and yes, look, I thought it was a good statement. Um, you know, I actually did feel that, you know, even though the majority of scorecards were justifiably close, that even before the KO, Crawford was doing a better job, I thought, of handling Porter than, than Spence had done before him. But 
you know, getting it done in front of Errol Spence doesn't matter unless there's a path to then facing Errol Spence. And and this has been the problem for a while now. Um, according to Crawford, this was his final fight under his deal with Top Rank. He's also said that he's made a decision as to what he's going to do going forward, although he wasn't going to reveal that decision yet. Is he going to put himself in a position or, or sign with a promoter to make the Spence fight more doable? You know, that's what we'll see. But off the back of this, we asked Terence Crawford... We wanted to see Terence Crawford go up against a high-level opponent uh, and look impressive, and ideally look at least as impressive as Errol Spence. He did that, and now it really there's really not an excuse for us to wait any longer for this. Crawford against Spence finally is the fight that we need to see next. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, how did you see it going into the conclusive round? And the other thing I want to ask you about, as I often like to check in with you and see how you feel about stoppages Uh, normally because we're criticizing referees for making early stoppages this was a corner stoppage it felt like an odd stoppage to me like you said obviously you know even though crawford was was taking over you mentioned that porter had pounded the canvas in frustration that was not the sign of a guy who was in deep trouble seemingly right you could argue that kenny porter knows his son better than anyone um sean deferred to his father in the post-fight interview but then his dad proceeded to assassinate his son (laughs) with his post-fight interview just saying he stopped it because Sean's preparation hadn't been good enough and he basically eviscerated a guy who just put up a terrific effort while Sean Porter could do very little more than just stand there with his head hanging it was painfully awkward did it feel to you as it did to me that this is one reason why having dads as trainers isn't (laughs) always a good idea yeah, uh, let me get to the. Uh, I'll mention my scoring first, and then I'll uh, deal deal with that assassination. Sure. Um, so I actually scored it and, and saw it a, a little bit differently than you did. I, I didn't think Crawford was quite as comfortable and in control as you did, and I had Porter up by one point. Uh, I had the the exact same round by round as Weisfeld and Moretti, except they gave Crawford round two, and I didn't. Although I acknowledged mm. that was pretty close to a coin flip round when I was trying to decide who to give it to. Um, Ultimately, the judges didn't matter. And uh, you, you know who else didn't play a role? Let's give a quick shout out to Celestino yes. Ruiz. We, we yes. criticize him when he sucks, which is not infrequently, uh, but he caused no problems in this fight. So, you know, faintest of praise for not causing any problems or influencing the fight. You, you didn't notice the ref, and that's yeah. a win. Um, one guy you couldn't not notice, however, was Kenny Porter. Um, for starters... I didn't love the stoppage, um, at least not as it was happening. Now, maybe if I'd seen the scorecards and known for a fact that with a 10-7 round at least coming, Mm. Porter was officially hopelessly behind and needing a knockout, I think that makes it a little easier to stomach. But this was a stoppage that seemed based on likely punishment to come, not based on Porter actually Mm. being hurt. In my view, he seemed totally fine, fine enough to punch the canvas in anger. But it was only going to get worse for him, probably. So I can accept the stoppage, even though I would have liked to have seen Porter get one more chance to recover. But a dad looking out for his son, if that's what it was, which was what it appeared to be in the moment, okay, I can get behind that. As we learned in that post-fight interview, though, this was not a dad looking out for his son. Mm. Uh, certainly, he's not looking out for him emotionally. Um, yeah. Kenny Porter threw Sean under that bus tire and paused with the full weight of the bus on him for a little <laughs> while. Um, if he was saying Sean didn't train hard enough, I couldn't see that. He looked in fine yeah. shape to me. Um, it seemed more like he was saying 
Sean didn't listen to me well enough in camp and made some of his own decisions, and so he lost, and so it's his fault, and don't blame me. I did what I could, but my son blew it, and I had to stop it to save him. So, something of those, along those lines is what he seemed to be getting at, and uh, that was rough. Uh, and yeah. so I was thinking as they left the ring, well, I bet Sean Porter's getting a new trainer after this. This is the last fight they're going to work together. But at the post-fight press conference... Porter actually announced his retirement, somewhat surprisingly. Um, but, but it makes perfect sense when you hear him explain it. He said, quote, I was prepared to announce my retirement tonight, win, lose, or draw, um, which I'm not sure I buy that he retires off right. a win um, with, with the potential big money that would come from that. Um, but he explained that he's fought everyone there is to fight at welterweight, proved everything he has to prove, and may as well get out now. And of course, he has a, a good broadcasting career going. So I actually love this as a spot for him to retire. Um, but as always, we'll see. The first try rarely takes in boxing. Yes, indeed. All right. So uh, back to Bud Crawford. Uh, we talked last week about pound for pound and whether it was possible for Bud to deliver a win so spectacular that he would reclaim the number one spot from Canelo. It's fascinating that this one thing the two of them have in common that I can't remember seeing with many other fighters over the years they are both perfectly content to fall behind early or, or let a fight yeah. remain close on the cards in the mid to late rounds. 100% confident that their skills and pressure and power will deliver a knockout later on. So it's tempting to ignore the fact that Crawford was arguably slightly behind heading into round 10, or at least that it was close uh, through through nine rounds because... Well, that's how he fights. It was no concern to him. Why should it be a concern to me? Um, but I did say that he needed a dominant knockout win over Porter to jump over mm -hmm. Canelo. And to me, this wasn't that. This was a very, very good win. Maybe the all-around best and most meaningful win of Crawford's career. But to me, he didn't look great for half the fight. He, he wasn't coming forward as much as I thought he should have been. It wasn't convincing enough for me to demote Canelo when Canelo has been as active as he has been against very good opposition. So I still have Canelo won Crawford 2. Uh, incidentally, I think the case for Inouye at number 1 is very weak right now. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, subject to change the, the next time one of them fights, I have Canelo 1, Crawford 2. Do you think that's the correct order, Kieran? Yeah, I do. Look, I think if Crawford, you know, pound for pound, it's not just an, an eye test. It's also about what have they actually done in the ring to deserve it. And I think if Bud had beaten the opposition that, say, Errol Spence has beaten and done it, in, you know, comprehensively or at least as well as Errol Spence and then done this to Sean Porter, uh, it might be closer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if he goes from this to an Errol Spence fight and whoops Errol Spence, yeah. then it's a different matter. Um, but at the moment, this was like the first fight against a a, a real high-caliber uh, welterweight opponent that we've seen from him, at least in some time. And he's got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, Canelo, as you mentioned, has been very busy. He's, you know, unified a division. Uh, you know, after being a few years back, lineal middleweight champion and then, you know, moving up a division and then taking a belt at 175. And yet may well, as we'll discuss later, be adding yet more strings to his pound for pound bow. So because of that, he's got a lot of catching up to do. It's going to take on talent alone. It's a difficult uh, choice. Right. You know, they're very different talents. But Crawford is, is at least as good, I think, as any other boxer out there right now. But talent and resume 
it's still Canelo's uh, position atop that list to lose, I think. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, the night before Crawford Porter in Manchester, New Hampshire, Demetrius Andrade retained a middleweight belt with a dominant second round stoppage of Jason Quigley. On the undercard, McWilliams Arroyo and Julio Cesar Martinez exchanged three knockdowns in two rounds before their fight was declared a no contest after an accidental headbutt opened a cut over Arroyo's eye and Arroyo complained he couldn't see. And one of your favorites, Murajan Akhmadaliyev, won a wide unanimous decision to retain his 122-pound belts against a ridiculously game late sub, Jose Velasquez. Kieran, uh, I'm not sure whether you did indeed make the trip to Manchester, as you said you might, or whether you stayed on the couch with a tub of ice cream. But either way, uh, what stood out to you here? Couch ice cream and regret for the win, baby. <laughs> um... Heavy on the regret. <laughs> yeah, heavy on the regret. Yes. Um I do actually kind of wish I'd gone because it was an enjoyable evening of fights. Um, yeah, like you said, ridiculously game Velasquez. I mean, he was tough as all hell. Uh, Akhmedaliev was landing half of his power shots, just really tattooing the guy. But, you know, he, he more than hung in there um, and rarely looked like not making the distance. It's a perfectly good performance by Akhmedaliev. But I think with Fulton and Figueroa going at it next weekend, he probably could have done with more than a perfectly good performance to, to, to really stake a claim and, and get people demanding that he face the winner. Um, I did think, and I mentioned last week, that I thought the co-main would be the most competitive bout, and so it was proving until it was all over. <laughs> right. uh, uh, that was an unfortunate kind of ending. But um, as for the main event, yeah, look, I, I don't think anyone expected Quigley to be a serious challenge for Andre, but getting blown out like that was not good. Um, I feel bad because I know Jason. We know Jason. We've right. had him on previous iterations of the podcast. His main trainer is Andy Lee, who's a really good friend of ours. And in his absence, his trainer on the night was another friend of ours, um, Wayne McCulloch. Right. But this is not a forgiving business. And there are levels to this game. And uh, and Jason quickly found that out. Andre needed a performance like that. He, he quite often, it's so weird. He, um, I want to say almost always, but that's an exaggeration. But he often drops guys in the first. Right. And then settles into outboxing them for 12 rounds. So he needed this uh, to make him a more appealing prospect. Because right now, the way he generally boxes, nobody wants to fight him. And there's no demand for anyone to fight him. Um, he needs to create that demand. And ideally, he wants more performances like this. Obviously, not everyone's going to be as overmatched as Jason was. But he needs to add that excitement to his obvious abilities because otherwise people are going to avoid him as much as they possibly can because there's just no – it's the risk-reward ratio is all skewed wrong. So he needs more of this, uh, Demetrius Andre. Yeah, so a, a few quick comments on, on each of these fights. About Velasquez, I'll just say that not only was he insanely game and tough – he hit hard, especially yeah. to the body. I thought he was bothering Akhmedaliev with some of those body shots. He was never really in the fight, but he, he was getting some offense through there as, as well, we should acknowledge. Um, Arroyo and Martinez, I actually ended up putting a small bet on Arroyo at 8-1 to one odds. I just figured that was a little too high, and I was feeling good for half a round uh -huh. when, he, when he scored the first <laughs> knockdown. Then I was feeling not so good, and ultimately I think I got bailed out. I got my money back on the no contest result, which uh, probably counts as lucky for me. Um, I don't have a ton to add about the Andrade fight. I knew it wouldn't be competitive, but it was even more of a mismatch than I thought. And obviously it's better for Andrade's career than another monotonous 12 round decision, but it still doesn't do much to elevate him toward a major fight. And um, speaking of which, to that broadcaster who remains very publicly <laughs> obsessed with Andrade versus Charlo happening, let me just say, 
we all see through the attempt to follow the Stephen A. Smith hot mm-hmm. take blueprint. Nobody is buying what you're selling. This is not a good look. Please move on. Indeed, yes. All right, and, and I will move on uh, to some fights coming up this Saturday, uh, two days after Thanksgiving. We get a fight we can be very thankful for as Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton, 19-0 with eight KOs, takes on Brandon the Heartbreaker Figueroa, 22-0-1 with 17 knockouts in a clash of unbeaten 122-pound titleists. This is a fight that had originally been scheduled for September, but was delayed a couple of months after Figueroa caught COVID. And from the moment it was first announced, it has felt like a potential fight of the year candidate. Kieran, what is it about this matchup that should give listeners reason to be excited? And what are you excited to see? Basically, people should get excited because this is a fight between two damn good fighters. Um, yeah. Both of them can be hit. Um, Figueroa's opponents landed uh, 31.4% of their power punches and fights tracked by CompuBox. Fulton's opponents landed 30.5% of theirs. But they also land a lot of punches of their own. Uh, Fulton lands 38.8% of his power shots. Figueroa lands 39.9% of his. And they throw a lot. Fulton throws 65 punches per round on average, which is a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But Figueroa average is 96. Damn. So the data suggests we're going to see a lot of leather fly and a lot of leather land. But what's really exciting and interesting to me is the way in which they go about their business is very, very different. Figueroa makes no secret of what his plan is. He says he isn't a pretty fighter, which I think is him being a little harsh on himself. Um, of course, he's a very pretty fighter. He's just (laughs) saying that he doesn't fight pretty. Um, His point is that he brawls and he mauls. He comes forward. He just looks to get in close, hit his opponent pretty much everywhere. Body punches are a big feature of his offense. Um, But despite being relatively tall for this division, he bends forward. He digs in close. He gives up his height and reach to sort of maximize his leverage in close. Fulton, on the other hand, he's kind of a chameleon. Um, He has fast, fast hands, terrific footwork. And he often uses them to great effect, boxing, moving, bedazzling his opponents. But against Angelo Leo, who in some superficial ways is very similar to Figueroa, and he throws a lot of hard punches, especially to the body. Fulton matched fire with fire, staying in the pocket, using his hand speed to beat Leo to the punch, and a tremendous and exciting performance. So basically, we have two very skilled guys who like to fight, who like to throw punches, who can get hit while they're throwing those punches, but it's very difficult to know exactly how the fight is going to play out. Will it be a mesh of styles or a clash of them? And I think for me, that's one of the things that makes it very exciting. I mean, how about you? I know that you also have been looking forward to it. Yep. So on a scale of one to 10, with one being a hypothetical John Ruiz versus Henry Akinwande matchup Ugh. and 10 being Mike Tyson against David Tua, how excited for you are you for this and why? Interesting that you went with Tyson Tua. There was always the potential with any Tua fight that he just wasn't going to let his hands go. Uh, but, mm. but I'll take it in the spirit in which it was intended and not get sidetracked by nitpicking um, <laughs> <laughs> for a change. Um, I'll go nine here. Nine out of ten. Okay. Um, look, the, the undefeated records are nice, but it, it's two other numbers that are fueling a lot of my excitement. 24 and 27. Those are their ages. And... Mm. Look at Crawford Porter, uh, Canelo, Triple G, etc. There's almost always one or both fighters in their 30s by the time they face the biggest possible challenge. Two guys in their mid-20s, that's a rarity. It wasn't always. Um, you know, people will point out Leonard Hearns won. Uh, they were 25 and 22. Uh, but nowadays, it's hard to get two top fighters this young together. Two guys with 
all the treads still on their tires, still on their way up the mountain, taking a chance like this. That makes this feel special. Another thing that intrigues me about this is I've underestimated Brandon Figueroa at times. Um, Mm. I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's the pretty boy factor or if I unfairly associate him with his brother Omar, who I correctly (laughs) identified early on as being a little overhyped. Maybe I put too much stock in his struggle with Julio Ceja, but whatever it is, he's a guy I've been a little skeptical of, but I'm not anymore. He convinced me to rethink things with the way he overwhelmed Luis Neri. So that makes this two fighters who just keep raising their stock every time out and winning me over in some way or other uh, every time out. It's also everything you said in terms of the styles. And within that, the question of, what style is Fulton going to choose to use in this fight? Since now we know that he can be a slickster or he can stand and slug. He is very much a Philly fighter. He's crafty, but he's also tough. So I don't know what there is to not be excited about here. (laughs) It's one of those fights where it's not easy to pick a winner, where each guy probably represents the toughest test yet for the other, and where we come in with a lot of questions and we have a fight with the potential to answer most of them. I I can't wait. Um, And I will thank you, Kieran, never to put either of their names in the same sentence as John Ruiz or Henry Akinwande (laughs) ever again. Um, The co-main sees the return of one of our favorite recent guests on the podcast, another 122-pounder, Raiz the Beast Alim, who puts his record of 18-0 with 12 KOs on the line against Eduardo Baez, who has 20 wins, one loss, two draws, seven knockouts. Uh, Kieran, we last saw Aleem looking very impressive against Vic Pasillas, knocking him down in rounds two, six, nine, and 11 en route to an 11th round stoppage. Viewers of Ring City USA may be familiar with Baez, who scored wins over Narak Agbarian at the wild card and Abimel Ortiz in Puerto Rico. Uh, Kieran, what kind of fight can fans expect here? Uh, potentially a fantastic one, actually. Um, you know what I said earlier about Figueroa and Fulton and throwing a lot of punches? Well, I'm immediately going to do exactly what you just asked me not to do. They are positively hugging Henry Akinwande compared to Baez. <laughs> um, in those two wins that you just mentioned, he threw an absurd 127.3 punches per round. Wow. And in nine of 16 rounds monitored by CompuBox, he threw, he threw more than 130 um, he also lands quite a lot of those. He lands like 38% of his power punches. And again, another one, this is going to be a theme of the night, targets the body, uh, landing almost 14 body shots per round. Aleem, in contrast, he's a little more measured. He's arguably a bit more efficient and accurate. Um, and arguably also with a wider assortment of options in offense. And he has better single punch power and accordingly a better KO ratio. If this, this fight, I think, is going to depend on who can impose whose pace on the other. If Baez is able to come out of the gate firing those kind of absurd numbers of punches, this could be a difficult night for uh, uh, Rui Salim. Alim is going to want to try to slow him down somewhat. Uh, and it's unusual for Reese Alim looking to try to slow down a fight, but he's going to have to do that a little bit and keep him thinking at least a little bit if he's going to um, be successful on the night. Um, the broadcast opens. The pair of fighters who've had some rotten luck lately. Um, the last time we saw Gary Antonio Russell in the ring, it was for just 16 seconds as he and opponent Emmanuel Rodriguez clashed heads violently, sending Rodriguez face first to the canvas, uh, causing the fight to be declared a no decision. Meanwhile, on the five occasions CompuBox has tracked his opponent, Alexandra Barrios Santiago, 
He's outlanded his opponent 760 to 647 overall, including 223 and 133 in jabs and 537 to 514 power. But he's gone just 104 in that span. So whose luck is the more likely to turn on Saturday, Eric, and why? So the instinct is to say Russell, you know, a head clash, no contest in 16 seconds is a fluke. Um, but Russell also had a clash of heads in his previous fight yeah. with Juan Carlos Payano, and they went to the cards early. He's right-handed, but he fights as a southpaw, and, and we know what that stance can do in terms of head clashes. So maybe this is a trend, not a fluke. Um, as for Barrios Santiago or Barrios or Santiago. I, I've seen and heard him called both. Yes. Um, you know what? I'm going to call him ABS. How do you feel about that? There you so go. Full initials. As for ABS, um, his misfortune with the judges is not fluky. Uh, th- that trend exists for a reason. Um, yep. By the way, I should note he, he's 24-2-5 overall. That that 1-0-4 record in CompuBox st- fights, uh, he, he's done better in his other yes. fights, including winning his last eight straight. But his style, he's a short guy, five foot two and a half. He almost has that Isak Cruz height, but he does not fight like Cruz. Uh, he's a slick boxer. He lands more than his opponents, but he throws fewer. He gets outworked, and the things he does are subtle and, and not always easy for judges to appreciate. So if it's a close fight, we know Gary Antonio Russell can be a fairly aggressive fighter, at least more aggressive than ABS. So it's likely that if the fight is close and goes all 10 rounds— ABS would land on the wrong side of the decision again. Uh, but but fingers crossed for none of the above. No head clashes, no debatable decisions, a clean fight and a clean winner. That's my wish here. Uh, and, and when I make my prediction shortly, of course, uh, I will wish for whatever that outcome is uh, for maximum points. All right. Let's bring in this week's guest. And he's one side of Saturday's main event. We last saw him in January scoring a dominant and impressive decision over Angelo Leo to up his record. To 19 and 0 with eight KOs, he is undefeated, 122 pound titleist Stephen, cool boy Steph Fulton. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, Stephen, we're about a week out now from your clash with Brandon Figueroa. So, pretty straightforward question: How are you feeling? How has camp been? Are you ready to go? I honestly feel good. I feel real good. I feel I feel great in the space that I'm that I'm at right now. I feel good that I got away. And yes, I'm excited to throw down. I'm excited to fight. I can't wait to uh, you know next Saturday comes to put on a, a hell of a performance. Yeah, I'm curious. How do you taper down training? Like, are you still sparring at this point, or is that part over with? Where are you right now in terms of the the training process? Sparring is over for me. Like, if I get in the ring with anyone, it'll be an uh, uh, amateur to, you know, just work on my eyes and work on things I need to work on. And just to stay a little warm and loose, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I wouldn't get in there with no nobody dangerous or nobody that's, you know, heavy in weight right now. Because that, that wouldn't make sense. You know, right now we have to protect the investment and protect the fight. Yeah, so makes sparring sense. Sparring is uh, kind of over right now. It's, it's all about tech sparring and, you know, just winding down, making the weight the right way. Gotcha. So the higher up you climb and the bigger the fights get, the more obligations you have, apart from just training and fighting, um, especially during fight week. Do you enjoy that part of it? You seem like you probably might do, you know, all the media interviews, all the attention, all that kind of stuff that goes with becoming a bigger and more successful fighter. Yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, uh, without the media, uh, I feel like we wouldn't be as big as we are. The media plays a huge role in our careers and a lot of, and a lot of it goes 
uh, overlooked or underlooked. How would I put that? Overlooked. Yeah, overlooked. Yeah. A lot of a lot of a lot of people doesn't uh, appreciate and accept it. A lot of fighters give give the media their asses to kiss and <laughs> as if uh, the, the the media need them when they don't. So it's like I appreciate the media because they 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 are helping me reach new heights and you know. If I stay on the media's good side, I'll always be talked about in a good way, you know? Never know. That's right. Yeah, you never know. You never know when that, that smiling interview, like, comes back to work to your benefit down the line, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so so we last saw you in the ring 10 months ago against Angelo Leo, and uh, before that, you were out of the ring for a year. Um, you know, you were originally supposed to face Leo in June of 2020, but you caught COVID. And then you were supposed to face Figueroa two months ago, but he caught COVID. So I'm just wondering, how challenging has this past year and a half or so been for you? Uh, the year and a half in the beginning, it was very challenging for me. It was very, I had to adapt, you know, to different circumstances. Around this time now, you know, I'm used to it, so I know what to expect. I know how to get around. I know how to maneuver around the things. I know how to not let things, you know, that I can't control get the best of me. You know, I just leave it in God's hands at that point. But at, in the beginning, it was very challenging. You know, I went through some hardships, some rough patches, and, you know, it, it, it shaped me into a better fighter. Are you saying, are you, like, referring to, like, lockdown and quarantine and, and all that sort of stuff uh, being hard on you or, or specifically, like, getting COVID yourself or, or just or, or something else beyond that? <laughs> I'm speaking in reference to lockdown, you know, catching COVID, uh, dealing with um, things uh, within, you know, my 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 cir- my inner circle, like the, the switch of trainers and uh, being around my family more. It was just a lot that I had to, you know, face and you know start to do and change. There's a lot of change that everyone in this world had to make. Yeah, it's it's funny that we don't think about it as much now because we're kind of out from the early days of it. But the you saying being around my family more, we sort of forget how uh, how how sick we all got of our families for a little while there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so so when we did get a chance to see you against Leo, you surprised a lot of people with your performance. I think most of us expected you to box and move, but you fought him, and in fact, you outfought him. In the pocket. Now, I'm not going to even try to ask you what you're going to do against Figueroa, because I'm sure you're not going to tell me. But um, can we expect a few more surprises from uh, Cool Boy Steph on Saturday? For sure. I, I expect this from a hell of a performance. I mean, I'm always down to surprise people and do the unexpected. Expect the unexpected, because that's what I do. I always expect the unexpected. With that being said, I know he'll be ready to fight. I know he'll be ready to, to uh, make the adjustments that he needs to make in order to face me. I, I never just look at him as one uh, a one sheet fighter, even though in, in my eyes he is, but you know, at this magnitude and the person that he's going up against, which is, which is Stephen Fulton Jr. He's going to be prepared. So I, I can't, I, I will expect unexpected out of him, but I will always uh, suggest all of you to expect unexpected out of me. <laughs> Cause I will be coming to fight each and every style. Mm. Did you enjoy like surprising people last time and the reaction that you got for the way you fought? Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it because it's like, damn, y'all ain't like, a lot of people ain't never seen me fight that way. I mean, right. like my trainer, of course, you know, people in the gyms, of course, because, you know, sparring and stuff like that. But a lot of people, it, it gave me a view like, all right, well, I'm going to give y'all something else this time. I'm going <laughs> to show y'all something different this time. I'm going to mix it up for y'all this time. And, that, and they made me want to do that. 
well, speaking of the the expected versus the unexpected, one thing that we've come to expect from Figueroa is that he's a come forward fighter, and and Angelo Leo is the same way. He's a come forward fighter. So on the surface, they're similar opponents, but what are the differences in your eyes, and and what specific challenges does Figueroa present? I feel like um, Leo was a was a pressure fighter that just he kind of throws just throws the punches and you know punches and bunches. Uh, Brandon is the puncher. He is the uh, one that kind of try to slow you down and overwhelms you with mm. his punches. That's that's I feel like that's the difference between okay. them two. How aware of Brandon's body punching do you need to be? I mean, I feel like I should always be aware of of the body punch because the body punches does slow you down. But a lot of people talks about Brandon uh, body punches and not a lot about mine, and, <laughs> and it's underrated. <laughs> but you guys will see. Okay. <laughs> Um, look, I know you won't want to look past Figueroa, but we've seen an increasing number of fighters unify all four belts in the division. You know, Terence Crawford, Josh Taylor, Alexander Usyk, Clarissa Shields, and then, of course, most recently, Canelo. If you get past Brandon Figueroa, you'll be halfway there. Would your goal be to get the other two belts and complete the set and join that list? Yeah, that's that's the ultimate goal. That should be everyone, every champion's goal. And each week as you go in, you should want to be take over their, their whole division and be undisputed in that, in that weight class. So, yes, that's my ultimate goal is to become the first ever undisputed at the Super Bantam weight and not overlooking anyone and then maybe, maybe move up and do the same thing. Gotcha. So, uh, last couple of questions here. Uh, do you regard Brandon Figueroa as your biggest challenge to date? No, I feel like my, one of my biggest challenges was Arnold Kigai. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like he can beat Brandon. I feel like... Uh, that was one of my biggest challenges because the way I fought, the way uh, he fought me, you know, he made it a rough fight, made it a dirty fight, a lot of slamming and elbows and stuff like that. So, you know, he tried to take me out of my game plan. That was a, a bigger fight. But as far as, like, the stage and, the, and what's on the line for this fight, yes, this will be a bigger fight. Okay. And, and then uh, the follow from that, uh, Kieran and I on the podcast talk sometimes about, about betting on fights. I, I like to actually place wagers. What kind of results should I be putting my money on? Is, is there any chance that you want to name an exact round I should be betting uh, for, for a KO on for big money? I feel like the ninth round. Okay. All right. All right. I'm, uh, I'm definitely looking up those odds. <laughs> if, 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 if you say the ninth round, I like the ninth <laughs> round. <laughs> Uh, all right hey look steven thank you so much for joining us uh i know you got a busy week ahead of you so uh all the best uh for november 27th and we'll talk to you again soon okay i appreciate it and thanks a lot i appreciate this all right uh thanks again to uh cool boy steph for taking some time out uh, to chat to us there uh it is prediction time uh, as a reminder i have the slimmest of slim leads as we enter the final stretch 69 to 67 it is my turn to pick first i'll begin with the opener uh russell against i'll go with santiago okay and um on one level i feel like this is the easiest of the three to pick but that doesn't mean that i thought it was an easy pick if you know what i mean um i do think it has the potential to be the most cerebral and least action-packed of the three fights it could be intriguing as you mentioned look santiago's an unusual kind of fighter in that he's just five foot two. Yeah, he's a boxer and a mover. Um, he's not somebody who sort of uses his lack of height to try to get inside and, and, and fight inside. And that's going to pose a challenge for Russell. It's difficult 
it's the kind of fighter who you don't often come up against. And I think that's going to be difficult for him. You don't really want to be having to try to jab down at a guy who's boxing you. Um, and at the same time, Russell's jab is not necessarily his best weapon, but that's what he's going to want to use, I think, to try to uh, keep Santiago at a little bit of range there. That said, and you touched on this, there's a reason why Santiago has had bad luck with scoring. And I, I think that it's one of, he's one of those guys who, when, you, when he steps up just a smidge, is good enough to be highly competitive, but not quite good enough to put distance between himself and his opposition. Uh, I think that might prove to be the case again. It'll be close. It'll be a little bit back and forth. But I think Russell will have the edge all the way through. It won't be a blowout. It won't be wide. But I do think it'll be a unanimous decision win for Gary Antonio Russell. Okay. Um, so we don't get extra points for saying technical decision. Uh, that, that just counts as a decision. So there's no sense in specifically predicting the head clash. Uh, and, and of course, I don't want the head clash. Um, I think this but you're is predicting a, a head clash. <laughs> I am not necessarily. I, 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 although it wouldn't surprise me if that's what ends up happening. I think this is a chess match of sorts. Um, Russell has some clear advantages. He's longer. He's faster. He hits harder. But ABS is a tricky guy to fight. He's good defensively. Like you, I think we're looking at a distance fight here, one where probably neither guy gets badly hurt along the way. Mm. And I'm going to guess that both unlucky trends are broken. No head clash stoppage and also no unlucky decision loss for ABS because he will deserve to lose. It'll be close, but correct. Scores like 96, 94, 97, 93 Mm. for Russell. We have the same pick on this one. Uh, Moving on to Aleem against Baez. For me, actually, this is the fight where I think there is the most clear-cut favorite of the three. Um, I'm an Aleem believer. I think he's legit. I think he's at least a moderate threat to the Fulton Figueroa winner. Uh, Baez is solid, and his punch output is unreal. Um, But I see him as a half-level below here. The really tough question for me is whether Aleem wins by decision or stoppage. He's on a seven-fight stoppage streak, but the last two have come late, round 10, round 11, There is no round 11 to work with this time. This fight is a 10-rounder. Baez has never been stopped. It's a tough call, but I'm going to say with all those punches Baez throws, he's going to open himself up a bit too much, and especially to the body. I see Aleem landing some big shots to the body to hurt Baez. I'm going to take Aleem to score his eighth knockout in a row, and I will say it comes in the ninth round of a very fun fight. All right. Um, You know, I think we'll get a sense of how Aline Baez is going to look relatively early on. I think if Baez is able to come out firing at anything like the kind of pace he's displayed and is, you know, some of those wins we talked about and more to the point, if he's able to maintain that pace for more than say the opening round or perhaps two, then maybe where Aline could be in for a difficult night, but I'm with you here. Aline has more tools. He has the better punching power. He's got the body punching ability that could be key here. He's got the greater variety. He's just better. Um, and I think he also has the counter-punching ability, as you mentioned, to really start s- steering Baez uh, uh, into some good shots and using Baez's aggression against him. I think he's going to have to work hard for this. Uh, but I think once he kind of starts to get into his groove, might be a bit tight in the first half of the fight. And I see Aline kind of pulling away over the second half of the fight. Might have him wobbled, might have him in trouble. But I actually think Baez is going to make it to the end. I think Aleem wins a pretty comfortable, unanimous decision, which will take us to the main event. Um, 
which in some ways I see as being a bit of a mirror of that co-main, except for the fact that the two sides are far closer together in terms of talent and ability here, in that Figueroa is the ball. He's going to be the ball. We know that he's not going to almost certainly not going to come out and do anything different. He's going to come forward and be the aggressor. Fulton somewhat is going to be the matador. And for all that Figueroa is a hard, aggressive, skilled fighter, and for as highly as I regard him, I kind of think, and I'm increasingly starting to think, that Fulton might be on another level here. I think Figueroa may be good to very, very good, but I kind of think potentially Fulton might be special. Um... Figueroa's win over Neri was a real eye-opener, you know, in the sense that it proved his ability to fight and win at the highest levels. It proved how incredibly tough he is and how he's able to to sort of produce that game-ending punch uh, at any point. But it was a close contest till then. Um, Neri was landing well and often. I, I kind of feel that might only be a magnified against Fulton. He's got faster hands than Neri. He's got better footwork, better ability to shift position, counter whatever's coming at him. Fulton has the air to me of someone who's so at ease in the ring that it all comes quite naturally to him. And he thoroughly enjoys facing a real challenge that he can adapt to. I think he might be one of those guys who saves his very best performances for his very toughest challenges. Mm. It's a little Mayweather-like in that respect. And I think like Mayweather, he'll be okay if Figueroa wins the first couple rounds until he starts to time him. We've seen Fulton box and move. We've seen him stand in the pocket and fight in close. I suspect we'll see a bit of a hybrid of that. I don't think he'll stand in the pocket as much as he did against Leo. I think Figueroa is a tougher proposition and a harder puncher. There are going to be times when he's going to have no option but to do that, though, because Figueroa is going to make him. And he'll try to use his hand speed advantage to punch between Figueroa's punches um, and get some respect. Fulton will try to show angles. Figueroa will thump him everywhere to keep him in front of him. Um... I see Figueroa probably winning the early part of the, the fight and maybe the late part of the fight too if he's able to keep coming and just gradually wear Fulton down. The middle rounds are going to be where it's won, I think. I believe that Fulton's going to win the majority of those rounds. Ultimately, though, I wouldn't be surprised, like I said, if Figueroa comes back at him late in the fight and that makes it tight on the scorecards. It's going to be a decision. And I've gone back and forth as to what kind of decision... I have enough faith in Fulton that although I think it's going to be very, very close, it's going to be unanimous for Cool Boy Steph. All right. Um, is it disrespectful if I don't pick Fulton KO9? I mean, I, I asked him what to bet, and, and, and he told me, I have to you pick it, right? Yeah. You <laughs> well, no, you can bet KO9. It, yes, you all right. You didn't say you were going to predict KO9. Exactly. Okay. Money on so it. That's, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. It's not my pick, but I, I will bet it. Once the round-by-round round odds come out, um, I assume that'll be something like 20 to 1. So, you know, put half a pizza on that. Why not? Um, uh, unfortunately, the only odds I'm seeing this early in the week are straight-up winner odds. No props yet. Uh, those will come out later in the week. For now... The best price I'm seeing on Fulton is minus 340, Figueroa plus 265, and the draw plus 2500. Uh, that that draw price ain't, ain't bad at all. And wow. even the Figueroa upset price is kind of tempting, a little over two and a half to one. But Fulton is the minus 340 favorite for a reason. He's a little more skillful, a little quicker, a little more versatile. None of this is a knock on Figueroa, uh, echoing so, everything you said. He, he's an outstanding young fighter and a vicious body puncher. 
it would not be one bit surprising to me to see his pressure get to Fulton, but I think the more likely outcome is one that sees Fulton piling up points and Figueroa finding him a lot harder to get to than Luis Neri was. If Figueroa gets too aggressive or gets tired, I could definitely see Fulton stopping him. The KO9 is not out of the question, but I think more likely it goes the distance. And uh, Fulton looks a little future pound-for-poundy again. Uh, Is Mm -hmm. that a word? Pound-for-poundy? No, no, no. It is now. There we go. Yes. So I I think he looks great and gets the job done with scorecards a little wider than what you're predicting. I'm thinking something like 117-111, that kind of range, in a fight that that lives up to expectations in terms of the, the quality of the boxing and the consistency of the action. All right. So there'll be a little bit of movement. Uh, one way or the other, it's it's all resting on uh, on Alim and Baez there for the right. latest uh, uh, developments in the picks contest. Um, yep. One other major fight of note this coming weekend is on DAZN. Lightweight champ Teofimo Lopez finally meets George Cambosis at, believe it or not, the ninth time of asking. <laughs> um, which brings us to the tweet of the week, which actually seemed more amusing until Kenny Porter showed himself to be kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> and it's from at Lazy Lefty OG, who wrote, they asked Kenny Porter who he likes in the Teofimo Cambosos fight, and he said, damn, they ain't fought yet. Um, yeah, indeed. It's hard to believe. Uh, we've talked a lot, maybe too much, um, about all the shenanigans involved in getting us to this point. But I don't think we've actually discussed the fight at all. Uh, does Cambosos have a realistic shot here, do you think? So it's it, it, funny, you just jogged my memory as you were revealing the tweet of the week and calling Kenny Porter a bit of an asshole. It, it, you reminded me that on Ring Theory, you, we used to do a segment called Asshole of the Month. I think that really <laughs> underlines the difference between the podcast with you and the podcast with Bill. Here we do Tweet of the Week, there we did Asshole of the Month. Um, I, I guess it is a bit of a mixed week for for Kenny Porter, because that was, that was a very good tweet. Um, I don't give uh, Cambosos much of a chance here. Uh yeah, Lopez can be a little inconsistent, and people will point to the Masayoshi Nakatani fight as an off night for him, but he still won 10 or 11 rounds, and Nakatani is no joke, even though Lomachenko managed to stop him. But if that's the worst version there is of Teofimo Lopez, I don't think that opens the door very wide for a Cambosos win. George Cambosos is a perfectly solid fighter, but Split decision over Mickey Bay, split decision over Lee Selby. It should have been unanimous. It was at Wembley. Uh, but still, those results underscore the reality that Cambosos is not on the same talent tier as Teofimo. The layoff for Lopez is not ideal. It's 13 months. But Cambosos has had the same layoff. I just don't see how you go out and beat Vasily Lomachenko and then in your next fight lose to George yeah. Cambosos. He's not a pushover, but he won't be able to keep up with Lopez. It's been a lost year for Lopez. Hopefully, this is the start of him getting back on track for huge fights in 2022. Indeed. All right, let's move along to the news. And there is no question about what our main event is this week. And it's a news item that nobody saw coming. At a recent Alphabet Body convention, Canelo Alvarez trainer Eddie Reynoso asked for his man, the former middleweight and now undisputed super middleweight champion, to be granted dispensation to move all the way up to cruiserweight to face that organization's belt holder, Ilunga Makabu, a move that has generated a mix of emotions and responses. Is Canelo daring to be great? Is he taking on a relatively weak titleist to give the impression he's daring to be great when really he isn't? Is he denying us the chance to see super middleweight defenses against David Benavidez or Jamal Charlo? 
Is he forcing everyone at 160 and 168 to fight each other to produce one challenger? Kieran, what's your take on this news? It might be a little bit from column A and a little bit from columns B, C, and D. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect that having decided that he wanted to try and take a cruiserweight belt, there is a reason why Team Canelo focused in on Makabu, and it's not necessarily because he's the weakest of the champions, although he might be, or the belt holders, I should say. Um, Brady's and Dortico's are probably the class at the moment of that division, with Oakley, the, the real fast riser there. It might be as much the fact that the alphabet body whose belt he holds is also the one that's doing the stupid bridgeweight division. And one knock-on effect of that is that it is moving the cruiserweight limit back down to 190 pounds from 200, which will leave us with a ridiculous situation in which cruiserweight has different limits under different alphabet groups, but that's a discussion for another day. What it also means potentially is that therefore the weight differential might not be as extreme. the aforementioned alphabet body, and I love the fact that we're just doing everything we can not to mention their, their name, <laughs> hasn't previously indicated, to my knowledge, when it would be making this change. But dollars to donuts, it's in time for this fight. Um, look, uh, even if uh, Makabu is not the class of the division, and the one time we've seen him up against someone of any consequence, he was blown out by Tony Bellew. It's still a risk from Canelo. Um, you, you can make the case that it's, you know, it's a win-win and that he's got a built-in rationale for losing. Um, look, the guy, he's still a strong guy, Makabu, with a significant height and reach advantage over Canelo, who, as we discussed before, isn't even tall for a middleweight. Um, it's, in fact, quite short for a middleweight, let alone a cruiserweight. So it's a risk. It's a calculated risk. Perhaps it's calculated... In the same way that Roy Jones' challenge of John Ruiz was calculated and that it's calculated to look dangerous while actually, you know, playing to his strengths. The question for me is why he's doing it, Um, especially when there are, as we've discussed quite a bit lately, one or two very good challenges at super middleweight. Does he just not fancy fighting David Benavides? Does he not like that risk-reward ratio? Um, And he figures that's weighted more in his favor by moving up a couple of divisions? Maybe. Does he indeed want his potential challengers to fight it out among themselves and produce one clear uh, challenger? Maybe. But if he moves up to 190, will he get back down to 168? Although, of course, it's entirely possible that he'll make some kind of arrangement where he only has to weigh in at, say, 180, something like that. Um, That's something we'll have to see. There's obviously all kinds of calculations going on here on on Team Canelo. Look, I've, I could also be, and I've mentioned before that I've heard from folks close to him that because of his knee surgeries, he may not have that many fights. It could be he's closer to the end game, Canelo, than any of us realizes, and he just wants to rack up quantifiable achievements before mm-hmm. he hangs up the gloves and feels that adding cruiserweight titleist to his resume speaks louder than beat David Benavides. Or maybe he's just bored and he thinks it's a fun challenge. Um, I'm not entirely sure what this is all about. Uh, I think it's intriguing i'm a li- i'd be disappointed a little bit if we don't get to see him against benavides because i thought that was going to be an interesting challenge um it doesn't do wonders for me this fight but i kind of also see it from a resume building perspective and, and i sort of see from the casual fan perspective why it would work um one thing about canelo is He's awfully hard to predict, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what he's going to do next is kind of a fool's errand, um, notwithstanding the fact that we've tried to do it plenty over the years. So so speaking of him racking up quantifiable achievements, I'm going to be extremely cynical here 
<laughs> this hadn't occurred to me until you were talking there and dropped in the word Bridgerweight. What if the Bridgerweight uh. division was created specifically so that Canelo could eventually move up and grab one more alphabet title, that the plan is Cruiserweight and then Bridgerweight for Canelo? I, it's extremely cynical to think that way, but with this alphabet group and Canelo, the, them, them, you know, being in cahoots a bit would not be the most surprising thing. I, uh, let's hold on here. What you're suggesting <laughs> is that an alphabet body, and let's be honest, it's an alphabet body that's based in Mexico, mm-hmm, could mm-hmm. conceivably be so cynical and so unconcerned by its own rules, let alone the integrity of the sport that it is committed <laughs> to defend that it could actually engage in these kind of shenanigans solely in order to elevate its country's champion and purely incidentally secure additional sanctioning fees that it will of course spend on starving orphans that's that's what you're suggesting I think we've cracked the case detective Mulvaney <laughs> we might have done um, on the undercard Uh, of the news, a couple of fights of note that have been made or are reportedly close to being made. ESPN reports that Joe Smith Jr. and Callum Johnson are slated to meet in an intriguing light heavyweight matchup on that network on January 15th. ESPN also reporting that either a week later or two weeks later, uh, congressional candidate Jesse Vargas will face off against Liam Smith, uh, not on the hustings, but uh, uh, in the ring on the zone. And the new year will kick off indeed on January 1st with a heavyweight contest between Luis Ortiz and Charles Martin that will remarkably be a Fox pay-per-view. Uh, thoughts on any of those? This is a strange, strange pay-per-view. Um, <laughs> right? New Year's Day. It's a Saturday night. Uh, I, I don't follow college football, but I'm pretty sure that's traditionally a big day for bowl games. Um, you you need a really big fight card to take people's attention away from college bowl games, and, uh, and this ain't it. Uh, now, if it's a cheap enough show, maybe Fox only needs to sell like 20,000 pay-per-views to make money. I don't know. Um, King Kong Ortiz is still intriguing to me. Charles Martin has never been intriguing to me. Um, it's an all heavyweight show. You have Frank Sanchez on there, Michael Coffey. This would be a really solid Fox card to catch the New Year's hangover crowd looking to chill on the couch on a Saturday night. But on pay-per-view, oof, I, I, I don't see it. Um, but as we always say about pay-per-views, if you don't like it, don't order it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I won't be ordering it. Um, (laughs) The other fights, I was wondering if Vargas was retired from boxing based on the political run. I guess not. Uh, This is a decent matchup of two veterans where the winner stays fringe relevant. The loser might want to think about another line of work, be it in Congress or wherever. And uh, Joe Smith against Callum Johnson, very solid. Johnson's only loss is a KO for to better Biev. So a bit of a measuring stick here as I continue to look forward to the possibility of better Biev versus Smith, assuming I'm not getting better Biev Canelo, which my spidey sense tells me I am not. (laughs) Indeed. Um, All right. It is time for the top five challenge. And this week, it is my turn to set a challenge for you, uh, and it's still Canelo-related. Uh, in the wake of his win over Caleb Plan, there was some brief discussion as to where Canelo could potentially stand in terms of all-time super middleweights, but as it turns out, it looks like he's not going to stick around long enough for us to figure that out. Um, whatever he does up at Cruiserweight, and however long he lasts there, I can't imagine that he'll spend enough time there or make enough impression to put himself on any kind of all-time lists in the weight class. But who is on 
the all-time list in that weight class. Who are the top five boxers to have graced the cruiserweight division in the 42 years since it was introduced? Number one is probably a given. But there's a fair few other contenders to fill out the rest of the list, and the order might be kind of interesting. So that's your challenge. Top five cruiserweights of all time, i.e. since 1979. Okay, and I I think uh, number one was a given for a very long time, but that some people might have talked themselves into Mm -hmm. it not being such a given. So I have to think about that a a little bit. But uh, beyond who the top two are in some order, I'm not sure off the top of my head who the rest are. So this will be interesting to dive into. There you go. All right. That's what we like. We like the enthusiasm for the list, not the kind of reluctant going <laughs> along with things that you get from me. Oh, right? but once I've finished my list, I'm then going to pair them all up in claymation matchups. <laughs> See, that's fine. They're fighters. I don't care about that. <laughs> Just don't match them up against media people. Or do. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Um, that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, many thanks again to Stephen Fulton for joining us. Quick digital programming note. The all-access epilogue. Uh, to Canelo Plan is available on the Showtime Sports YouTube channel and other platforms, as is the first episode of All Access Davis versus Cruz in advance of the Javante Davis Isok Cruz pay-per-view that is upcoming, of course. And this Saturday, Showtime Championship Boxing Fulton versus Figueroa airs at 10 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, 7 p.m. Pacific. <laughs> um, we will be back on Monday with a recap of that fight. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, kind, and be well.